Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 211 on the OneOuter.com podcast. Alex, it's a privilege to speak to you so much recently in the last 25, 26 hours. We uh, don't have any Terminator small talk to just segue into this one. <laughs> so uh, what's the plan? Are we going to just fire right into questions? How are you? Is anything interesting happened in the last eight minutes? <laughs> I'm good, man. Um, you know, as much as I love the BSing, it's, uh, it, you know, I've had, I mean, just one thought before we get into the emails, I mean, the questions. I've had a lot of fun turning this business into it's about the students as much as possible. It's about their questions as much as possible, their fluff or whatever. You know, I really love to get on the digressions and everything, but it's really fun doing a newsletter every day as opposed to a blog because it's just all about making other people's lives better. And as cheesy as that sounds, that does they do a lot of research into what actually makes people happy. And it turns out it's not a lot of the things you actually would think would make you happy. Mm-hmm. It turns out just helping actually puts you in a better mood. And I, I think everybody knows that. Like when you give your seat on the bus to an older lady, you do feel, you do kind of get that little bit of giver's high right away, right? So. Yeah, you know, nothing about my life. Life is excellent. Life is good. And because of you guys, I have a job. So let's just get right into their questions. Well, well, before you do that as well, I'm going to throw something in. Just while I, we were on a break there, I came back early and um, Alex was, you know, away off doing something, probably making a coffee or shouting at some construction worker if the last however many <laughs> years or anything to go back. But, um, or no, was it children you started picking on recently in New York? I can't remember. Were you not screaming at kids or something? Do you guys, do you, guys, do you legit want to hear what I'm dealing with at this apartment? <laughs> do, do you guys want to hear it? Like, because if you, I have a guy, I'm not making this up. He, uh, I'm looking at his apartment right now. He's, uh, he, he's not the apartment across from me. He's kind of like kitty corner if you had like three apartment complexes. He's got the cross up on one window. He's got the painting of Jesus up on another window. And he walks around butt naked all the time. And just butt naked. And I'll be in the middle of a podcast and I'll look up and I'll just see his white ass walking around cooking. Right. And do you know how hard it is to focus when you're dealing with that? And then, of course, I do have kids that scream bloody murder in my uh, building on occasion, which is really annoying because there tends to not be any blood or murder. But I've learned to accept the kids more now that, you know, they come up and talk to you a little bit more when you're in an apartment complex and you just see them in the halls and whatever. And you meet the parents and you meet the kids and they're mostly cool. So you end up just going whatever. Just for clarity, the kids aren't in the same apartment as the guy that's going around me. <laughs> no, he, uh, he, he's... That's he's, all right, because I was going to make a call there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He was... Uh, no, no, he's nowhere near. He was... Uh, uh, there was one time there was a daycare out, and I thought he might be up in his window. And I was like, oh, God. And then I realized they weren't corresponding at times. So it's just... me. Actually, I think the way the apartments are set up, 
I don't think he thinks anybody can see him because he's actually facing like a brick wall of yeah. the other apartment complex. I don't think he can see anyone, but I can just barely see him from my office, which I'm here conveniently so many hours a day and he just keeps walking around like nobody can see him but yeah anywho this guy has no idea that he's been talked about on an internationally renowned poker <laughs> podcast. No, no well i've waved my arms at him like what are you doing at least 10 times i don't think he can see me yeah. but i can see him well and if you guys pick up master small stakes cash games in one class if you ever hear me in the middle of a thought and then just completely stop and do a five Mississippi, it's likely because I saw his white ass walking around and just was jostled from my thought when that happened. And then I had to turn in my chair to continue my train of thought. So like I said at the beginning of the show, there will be no digressions at all. <laughs> Nothing off topic. All <laughs> poker content all the time. We'll never yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we'll, we'll get him on the show one day. <laughs> we'll get his... <laughs> We'll get his side. We'll get his point of view. Yeah. yeah. He'll be like, I'm staring at this guy. He's this like white guy. He's never away from his computer. He never leaves his apartment. <laughs> oh, God. I could go on for day. A friend of mine was dating a guy that turned out to be in the apartment right next to his. But for a good week, I thought he was the guy. And I didn't know how to break it to her. He was always walking around naked. Then I... It was like that Friends episode, but yeah, turned out it wasn't him. Anywho, continuing. So just to throw it in, before you started talking about this naked guy or whatever, um, the, I was you were on a break, and I was looking for the test your poker super uh, super pack image to save so I can add that to the offer thing, etc. For the the offer that you're doing on that as well with the one hour code. And I just Google image search, you know, test your poker super pack, Alex Fitzgerald. And it just always reminds me of how much content you've put out. Again, you know, with Alex saying helping people and free content, it was like I actually found myself, I clicked on, where was it? It was Alex Fitzgerald reveals his uh, secret that's let him get deeper in poker events. And I was reading an article there. It was on, um, what's the site? Give them a shout out, pokerground.com. And it was about, um, you know, basically people don't play the 24 to 32 big blinds. They don't go all in enough pre-flop and stuff. So I was just reading that. So, um, yeah, there's plenty. Along with the One Outer podcast, do a quick Google search on Alex and join his newsletter and stuff. And there's tons of content. I mean, you know, you, you don't actually need anything else. You know, it's like there's there's so much stuff there to, to, to get your teeth into. Um, okay, on that note, Alex, what we're going to do is we are going to get right into the questions on this episode because we got about 33 minutes, um, give or take, because I, I need to be somewhere at 8 o'clock. Um, These so, box sets aren't going to watch themselves. Yeah, I know what we're dealing with. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, um, this one is from, oh, it's anonymous. That's always... Uh, I think Alex always takes a deep breath when he hears that. Well, and it's always, uh, it's always like, what is your favorite baseball team? It's always like, why did that have to be anonymous? But, it's anonymous, yeah. and it is, hello, um, I am the guy that lives across from Alex's apartment. and like, <laughs> No, it's not, <laughs> obviously. Um, hello, can you discuss focus during multi-day tournaments? 
tournaments that take at least three days to finish, long sessions, what overall strategies do you have and some actual gameplay strategy that can help when card dead, which will obviously happen? That's Damn, it. Great, the great question. And again, being anonymous for that one was very intelligent. That could have gotten you in a lot of trouble with the KGB. I'm glad we kept it. Uh, get, I'm glad we kept it safe. No, but uh, look, uh, one of the things I love about tournament poker the most is it's. I honestly don't think there are competitions of who's the best poker player because there's way better poker players than I am who haven't had some of the tournament results I've been lucky enough to have, but. I think it's really who's the tougher guy, like who can keep their mind together the longest. And I definitely realized this was very important because uh, at a WSOP main event like years and years ago, I uh, it, I might have been 22. I, I, I played till like day four and I had a huge stack and I misread another stack. And I essentially like jam 9x the pot into the nuts and it takes – you know, just one miscue and that's it, right? And then you're done. And uh, one of the things you have to be working on, I think, is your physical fitness away from the table. I have not uh, – this is where I'm going to be a real douchebag where I uh, brag about my workout regimen. But to let you know what one guy does in this industry, it has been a good – two and a half, three years since I have missed going to the gym three to five times. Uh, that, And it's not because there are days I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to do this, right? But you're going to pay for it one way or another. Your energy really leaves you if you're not taking care of yourself. And the, I think, yeah, maybe... No, maybe like one week I was on, I was at a friend's wedding. I think I might've just run and done some push-ups that week. But yeah, it's been about two and a half years. And my, I played, I got into the money of the WCP main event in, I think it was 2016. If you, if you want to see what I look like at 248, you go ahead and Google that image if you can stomach it. I hope you haven't eaten recently when you look at it. But I do not wear the weight well, Barry. Oh my God, it just goes to my face completely. But I remember on day four of that event being like, this is really difficult. This is, it had been a long time since I had gained a bunch of weight. You know, uh, I've done it a number of times in my life, which is weird to admit, but I, I had a hard time focusing. It, like I'd never dealt with that before. And that's where I got saved by something else, which was my training. You want your training to be so difficult that when you actually play, it's almost like a reprieve. If you check out my products and if you check out my articles or you check out the podcast, that's literally me dealing with the most difficult poker questions nonstop. And that's my job. And I really love my job because it's like training every day for my other love, which is tournament poker are cash games too because every day people just like here is the most difficult hand from my session so it just it gives you so much training in what's likely to be the hairiest moment and when your training is intense you can take on so much more at the table and you don't even have to uh 
you don't have to pay a dime for that. I think I have, if you go to pokerheadrush.com, I, I rotate the free training videos in and out. You can go on YouTube and see most of them. Or if you sign up for my newsletter at pokerheadrush.com, I'll just mainline them direct to your email inbox. But there's like 10, 15 hours of training on my site right now. You don't have to pay a cent for. And that's the kind of stuff I love because it's like, here's a tough situation. How are you going to get out of it, kid? Right? And you just do that again and again and again. And you get to the point where you almost have like a pilot's checklist in every tough situation. And then even if you're really fatigued, I noticed this on uh, uh, that same year that I final tabled the, uh, uh, or excuse me, that I cashed in the WSOP, I final tabled a WPT barely in uh, uh, Prague. And I had just gotten off the plane and the next day played the event. So I was dealing with some pretty tremendous jet lag. But my training was so good, even though I was a little winded from the uh, 10-hour, 12-hour flight from Costa Rica at that time where I was residing. Every hand, I was like, oh, I've seen this 100 times before. you got to look for X, Y, and Z. You know, this factor is going to confuse me, but I'm just going to ignore that. Uh, it just, and that's all the training. Your training should be very difficult. Uh, the actual practice should be a little bit more simple. I almost find myself when I play poker wanting more difficult situations because most of the stuff I do is pretty routine now. And it's like, I only get like three real brain teasers every day. And I'm like, man, I really wish that were like 30. And I thought, I find myself missing heads up and six max and all that. But I mean, that's another story, but I mean, I still, I do still play cash, but it's not, I don't get as many hours as I'd like, but anywho, they, it's mostly physical training and then it's actual training away from the table on the poker side of things. And there's little things that can give you a little bit more edge. Uh, I was a distance runner for the first seven years I played poker professionally, literally could run. But so I started noticing something, which was I could run 10 miles a day and still have a belly. I realized, hey, you know, this isn't burning the beer off like I was hoping it would, right? And uh, I noticed I wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be when I was distance running. And then it was around about like 26 in Costa Rica, 25, 26, I was living in this uh, really small town uh, up in the mountains and there was this little gym and it was like all the, all the uh, weights were like rusted in everything. And I started lifting there and I started feeling better. I said, the guy there was trying to teach me, but I, I, I looking back, I think that guy was trying to kill me. He was, he was one of those, like the bigger the muscles, the stronger you are. And then I was getting bigger, but I wasn't developing strength. And then I tried a few other gyms. And then when I got to New York, I actually found a gym I really liked and people that really could help me with that. And the biggest bang for your buck is weightlifting. If every time I'm messed up on a day three, day four, I just get my ass in the gym and 40 minutes later, it's, you just get this endorphin flood when you're lifting weights and it doesn't have to be like, I'm not a serious bruiser when it comes to weightlifting. It can just be, uh, 
like you wouldn't look at me and think like, oh, muscle head or anything like that. But it's almost like an advanced stretch, right? You know how good you feel after you stretch? Well, if you add just a little weight, like you can do a squat without weight. But if you add some weight, you can either do a thousand squats like, what's his name? Roger Clemens used to do before he would have a performance. Or you can do five squats at 235 and just be good to go if you're a big guy and just feel relaxed, right? Do five by fives, 20 minutes, and then you're good to go. That, and uh, you got to drink a ton of water. The biggest mistake I see everybody make in Las Vegas is they don't realize, even though you it feels like you're not on Mars, you practically are on the surface of Mars. You are in the middle of a desert. Just because you're in air conditioning does not mean it's not dry. I was my I had my I had my Airbnb in Las Vegas when I was playing the main event this year and I had my girlfriend there and I had uh, her mother and I told them I went and got 20 bottles of water like huge liter bottles of water and I told them drink two of these a day do not stop doing that and for the first three days they they followed my advice the fourth day they didn't they were like oh my god I'm getting uh, headaches now and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, keep drinking the water. You'll be there. And once you're behind on it, you can't catch up. It's you, you can down a Gatorade, but it won't do the same thing. You got to stay hydrated. It, alcohol is a depressant. It dries you out. Uh, pot, the same thing kind of stays in your system. Get eight hours of sleep as much as possible. Some kind of workout. The caffeine, you got to be careful, like one cup of black coffee or uh, a green tea is really good. If you do the, I used to do the whole like triple shot, mega cold brew, blah, blah, blah. But all that's going to do is in a couple hours, make you feel sick. And uh, the strategy I find that works really well, because you asked for a strategy in addition to everything here. At the beginning of the tournament, I noticed how many times, I'm sorry, I, I use this anecdote a lot, but it really does explain it. How many times have you sat down at a poker tournament and 40 minutes went by and you went, where the hell did 10% of my chips go? Somebody is getting that money and I want that somebody to be me. I start from the get-go. If everybody's limping, I am isolation raising. If everybody is, they're doing the whole like 2.5x call, call, call. Sorry, party's over. 20x right here, right? And obviously you don't do that with like Jack 7 suited unless you have crazy uh, physical tells or something like that. But you can even do it with a Jack 10 suited, but start with the pocket aid, start with the ace queen off, open up your isolation ranges a little bit, be it a three bet or preflop. And then what I've noticed is this does a couple of things. One, the goal of the tournament is not to make day two. So you can tell your spouse or your mother you made day two. The goal is to win. They don't even pay that much for 18th place. It's about winning. If everybody has decided they're not going to show up mentally until day two, I'm going to be working on day one. And then what ends up happening is the blinds and annies go up. And I'll be, you know, a lot of tournaments I'm, I'm out at the movies three hours in, right? I'm not, I'm not a day two grinder. I'm not there to brag that I min cashed. I, I'm not there to tell everybody I made a day two. It's a, 
it's funny though. I did, I did just play two WPTs where I made day two and I didn't do anything. And the W's with Pete Marion, I did the same, day three. Didn't make. Anyway, but you, <laughs> there's a, I, I just realized, wow, this is a load of crap. But uh, no, I mean, typically, obviously, if the spots aren't there, don't, uh, if the spots aren't there, don't push it. But most of the time when people say there wasn't a situation, that's a whole lot of, I didn't want to get made fun of. If people saw me squeezing with a, ace jack suited really big and then i lost a pot i was gonna hear something about it or if i had to three bet the same guy three times in a row i was gonna hear something about it. it's like look man if he's gonna open six three suited or ace eight off i was just having this in philly you have almost a moral obligation to three bet ace ten you you're in position it's final jeopardy and you know the topic jack the price up why wouldn't you want to play that spot? And yeah, but most people don't want to do that because if they lose three in a row, you get a lot of like, look at this guy. Look at you trying, right? And that doesn't feel good to most people. But what I generally see is for the chips they're going to give you, and they will give it to you on day one when nobody's checked in, right? On day two, a lot of times you'll have 70 big blinds and they'll have like 30, 40. And this is so glorious because you open, because they open, you go to 7X, they're defending for their stack, right? That's They're defending for their stack. And they do this really cute thing now where they call to see the flop and then fold to like a 5X C-bet uh, or any C-bet really, right? But like if they call you out of position, they're playing for their stack on the flop. Or pre-flop, they recognize they're playing for their stack. And like if you go from 70X to 63X, to 55x, it it doesn't really change that much for you, right? But if they go from 30x to 23x, that is a big problem, right? So being in that, I pretty much do all this stuff at the beginning. So I'm in that spot at the end uh, when everybody else has like 40, 50, 30x. I have 70, 80x because guess what? Every one of my double barrels at this point every one of my three bets, C bets, every one of my check raises now is threatening all of your chips. And if this is, I, I specifically focus on tournaments where I think the money means to something to someone, right? So you're not going to see me at the high stakes events because I, I'm not into it, right? The edge I want is like 1K events, 2K events, people that are really, they feel emotionally invested when they got there day two, they traveled, they got the hotel room, they told everybody they made day two. You check raise that guy and he missed the flop. Most of them don't have a three bet in them. Even if they have like second pair, no kicker, a lot of guys don't have it in them. You'll get a lot of confused calls, but that just gives you free cards, right? So that is about as much as I could give you in this time frame for lasting in multi-day tournaments. Good luck to you, sir. Our, our lady, it, this was anonymous, right? It, whichever. It was anonymous. It was anonymous. Um, okay, this one is from... Yeah, let's do this one. It's from Andrew. Hi, I'm looking to start playing some live poker again soon. I played mostly online, then started playing live three years ago. I haven't played live since a WSOP circuit event earlier this year. My plan is to play more games across the country against different players in different card rooms as I work up to play in WSOP 2020. 
Can you talk about playing against, sorry, playing live against random players that is unlikely you have ever played with before? When I have played live so far, it is against players locally who I have played with countless times before. So we all kind of know how each other plays and this changes things for me when I play against complete strangers. Hey there, uh, really good question. The way I deal with playing live is, look, human beings have certain habits. There's a reason, well, okay, we'll, we'll take everybody's favorite topic these days, politics. Do you notice how there's very few nuanced opinions when it comes to politics, there's not many people who say, I side on this with a few issues, I side on a few with, the, I side with this side on a few other issues. People get very tribal because humans are tribal. Humans have certain predilections, right? So that's why no matter what country you're in, it's us versus them with every group. That, that's ubiquitous. You go to any, any country on earth, you will find that. Us versus them, this group versus that group. This group doesn't understand uh, denigrating the other side. That is how humans are. Just like how humans have a tribal pathology when it comes to politics, humans have certain characteristics when they play poker. I titled one of the first chapters in my book, How Homo Sapiens Play Poker. As almost as if I was observing an alien race. What I have noticed through database review, through teaching thousands of students, through watching more tournament poker than anybody should ever watch, unless they're a special circumstance, most humans respond to a certain set of incentives. If you really want to get into this, I would really recommend these books, okay? Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is probably the best book on it. It is extremely dense. Uh, it's by Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize. Digestible version of that book, uh, there's The Undoing Project, which was written by Michael Lewis, who is the gentleman who brought you Moneyball. If actually, I would even recommend reading Moneyball. I would recommend reading about how humans are predictable. And there's lots of books about this Moneyball, uh, Everybody Lies. Anything by Michael Lewis could help you look into this, right? But the crown jewel is thinking fast and slow. Now, one of the things they found very consistently through humans is loss aversion. So what, what they found through a series of experiments, and this bears out pretty much always, is humans hurt more when they lose something than they do feel good when they gain something. And when they're posed with a decision where they must either decide to consent to a loss or to gamble to save everything, humans overwhelmingly will gamble to save everything. That is just a fact that they can quantify. That might be a good thing if you think about a soldier who's noble, it might be in his best interest to hang behind 
the front line and be safe, mathematically, it might not be a great idea to go behind enemy lines and try to save his buddy, but he'll gamble to save his buddy. Maybe that makes humans noble. It doesn't make them terrific professional gamblers. So if you want to look into this, the, uh, I, I believe the experiment uh, Kahneman used was the Asian disease problem. That's really fascinating. I believe that's what it's called. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I believe it's called the Asian disease problem. But you can look it up. And there's, I'm sure there's lots of uh, Forbes articles about it because this is really big in business. It, oh, another, you should read all of Robert Cialdini's books if you want to learn about how humans operate. Uh, the two, well, I think there's only two, persuasion and influence. Uh, you should also read Scott Adams. Uh, Scott Adams, what was his book? I think it was called Win Bigley. This is the guy who's like a raging Democrat who said two years out, oh, Donald Trump's going to win this election. And he was right. And he'll tell you exactly why he thought he knew that. And he talks a lot about per persuasion tactics and how people are persuaded and how uh, how the world actually works. And the thing you're going to find when it comes to poker is people respond to a certain set of incentives unless they have been trained away from this or they possess some capability that allows them to not feel the emotional responses that average poker players feel. So uh, there's some that contend people with Asperger's don't feel certain things. There's a, a, excuse me, I guess that's not the term anymore, the autistic spectrum. Uh, according to the book, Stumbling Onto Happiness, people with clinical depression are better gamblers because they don't really feel the exhilaration when they win. So they look at things very logically. Uh, obviously, I'm not a researcher. I don't know if these things are exactly true. I'm just reporting to you what I've read. Now, uh, how does this relate to poker. Well, in poker, people respond to a certain set of incentives. And for the longest time, I didn't know what those incentives were because my incentives, what I did is I projected my incentives onto other people. My incentive is to make the most money. That is not the incentive of most people. When they play poker, it is recreation. It is a diversion. They would like to win but most people go along to get along. Ostracism in ancient homo sapiens societies meant certain death. We are programmed to not want to be ostracized. And if you want to be ostracized very rapidly, rewind this podcast about 20 minutes and take all of my advice for the beginning of tournaments because you will definitely hear some comments in a variety of languages if you're the person who keeps breaking up multi-way pots. Now, Here's the thing, most, most humans are working on loss aversion. They're very afraid of consenting to a loss. They don't understand the sunk cost fallacy that once your time or your money is in the pot, it no longer belongs to you. Uh, this is why you stay in relationships longer than is intelligent given the circumstances. This is why you don't walk out of movies in the movie theater. This is why you eat the entire plate of food that's in front of you, even though it's massively oversized. It's because you have 
time or money invested in it and you want to get your time or money's worth. Now, in poker, what ends up happening is most people get two cards and they're very worried about not seeing the flop with them, right? So they'll raise because that's about the fastest way to the flop. Uh, or if everybody folds, they're sometimes not even happy with that. They want to see if they could hit something. But if they limp, they're not really sure they can get to the flop. But you'll see some people limp. But most people want to get their hands to connect and they want to make some money off it. The worst thing that's ever happened to most recreational players is they fold it in a hand cane. You'll hear that all the time in a card room. So what ends up happening is somebody will get a hand and they will, they want to play that hand, they want to see the flop, so they'll either limp or raise. And then from that point on, they gotta see the flop, right? Only if you raise to an exorbitant amount are they gonna be able to fold. Because then, socially, they don't feel bad about missing that flop. If you three bet, you are gonna get called in most places. If you raise someone's big blind, they're going to call most of the time because humans are very worried about that flop coming and them having hit something if they had just stayed along. So what I mean is when you're playing with random people, you gotta expect they're gonna wanna see that flop, okay? And what that means is your three bets are gonna get called, your open raises are gonna get called, and guess what? Most of your pots are gonna be multi-way. So you better develop a multi-way game. You start better honing in looking and going who loves themselves some pairs and who can actually hand read if they are recreational players or people who play a lot of the time but are still recreational they they might just hit a pair and still call you down three streets multi-way if they actually can hand read they might not do that so you can shut down a little bit but you should go in expecting most people are going to want to try to see the flop the way you're going to work against this is you're going to have to isolation raise to large amounts that you think one person is going to call or everybody's going to fold to. Because if you pick up 6x preflop, that's what Kings makes on average. That's actually fantastic. If you squeeze on a number of players and they all fold, and you pick up like 12x, that's more than Aces makes on average. That's fantastic. But that's you might wonder, why do people not play like that? It's because... They don't want to make money slow, not 5x at a time, 10x at a time, right? They, they want to hit their hand and win the big kahuna pot. So what you'll see is a lot of people getting to the flop, and then when they get to the flop, the incentives turn into... They don't want to be mocked because they want to feel like a poker player. This is their recreation. They want to be accepted. They want to be seen as one of the boys. I mean, just like if we went and played poker, you know, seven of us, 
in the back of someone's apartment, we would want to be one of the guys too. A lot of these guys have very stressful jobs and this is their recreation. They don't want it to end quickly, which is definitely something that can happen if you just start three betting people left and right. And they don't want everybody to hate them during that entire time. So naturally, and this is very understandable, they play in a way that's not going to get them blamed for anything. So that tends to be the fastest way I can put that is they raise two pair better, they call with their pairs, they fold high cards. It's okay to fold high cards because they saw the flop, they missed, and they now realize it's okay. Uh, not as much loss aversion, right? If they have a draw, if they have a pair, that hand is not hitting the muck. Almost any database you look at actually shows folding rates go down on turn and river. People fold less to triple barrels than they do to C-bets because once they're in, that loss aversion kicks in, you know? The same reason no one likes to leave food on their plate after they pay good money for it. The same reason people don't want to walk out of a movie uh, after they paid good money for it. Barry, did you walk out of Terminator? No, no, I didn't. Exactly. <laughs> At what point did you realize it was terrible? Um, probably about 20 minutes in, something like that, 25 minutes in. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever walked out of a movie in your life? Um, I can't remember if I have or not. I think I have. I think I have. So, but again, it's and that was even when I had the the unlimited pass and the other side. I think I went in to see some horror type film and it was just bad. And I was like, I'm not watching this. And I, I think I did once. Yeah, it's funny because most people have seen hundreds of bad movies in their life, but they walk they've walked out of like one or two movies in their life, which is, it's just because you put the money down, you're not walking out. Yeah. You got in the car, you showed up, you're not walking out. Well, it's like, they paid to play, they're here on the flop, they hit something, I'm not walking out. I gotta see if they turn Terminator around. I gotta see if I make my two pair. I gotta see if this flush draw comes in. So typically, the only bluff you're gonna get through when it comes to normal people is gonna be, you get it heads up, you get in position, you get heads up versus a very wide range, and then you see bet. and if they missed the flop out of position and they just have a high card, you have a pretty good shot of them folding. Now, they raise with two pair or better because no one is ever going to blame them if they raise two pair or better. Raising with pairs doesn't happen as much unless it's a short stack scenario because, I mean, if they can just flop a pair and jam on you with 30x, that'll happen. But deep stacks, it's not going to happen as much because the thing about pairs is if you raise with them, you learn very quickly that you fold out weaker pairs and you get two pairs to play back at you, right? So people aren't going to like that. Now, the really interesting one is bluffing. Uh I I never noticed this till I traveled, but I've played in cultures where bluffing is seen completely different than it is in the United States uh, or in Europe as much. Uh, I was playing with, well, when I was in Macau, 
there were some players there where it, South Koreans and uh, I believe Chinese were like bluffing was just funny. It like the bigger the bluff, the better. Brazil, they, in Brazil, I saw guys get caught bluffing and then they would go and hug the other guy and it was over. There was no stigma attached to it, right? It blew my mind when I saw that. But in some cultures, there is a stigma attached to bluffing because it's like, hey, this was a friendly game. Look at this young internet punk making it all about him, right? So there is a certain stigma if you three bet all the time. There is a certain stigma if you raise as a bluff and you get caught. So in general, you'll notice most people are not so into bluffing. If you're in most of Western Europe, the United States, most of Canada, people aren't as into bluffing. Uh, they don't, because if you get caught, have you ever seen a guy turn over a big bluff at the table after he gets caught? What is the general reaction? It's a lot of, oh, look at you. Oh, look at you. You got caught. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's a lot of people talking amongst themselves. It's usually I, I, ridicule, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's usually ridicule. People like laughing yeah. and comment. Yeah, it's ridicule. It feels terrible. Uh, I'm intimately aware of this. I, I have felt this a number of times in my life. It's, a, you know, people, they chortle at you and they say things about you and it, for whatever reason, this seems to be a Western European or American ideal. It's uh, if you're bluffing, it's like, oh my God, what, you know, what, what the hell, what's wrong with you? And people, they feel that a few times, and their incentive is to feel like a poker player. And you never ever can be blamed if you raise two pair better you hero call with a pair, you can never be blamed, ever. You, you call on the river. If the guy value bets something good, you just muck your hand. Nobody sees anything. You're totally fine. But if you caught the guy bluffing, you turn over your hand, it's like a dopamine hit. Like, ooh, nice call. Everybody loves you, your game now, right? Look at you. Ooh, nice, right? You can never be blamed, and if, if you never bluff, nobody's going to ridicule you. So you get to feel like one of the boys. You get a shot at maybe making some money, and that's what most people want. And I have found this in most of the most of the world. Actually, it was really bizarre when I went to Denmark the first time because they do not have this. It is like if I think you're bluffing, I'm raising you, and I'm going to see what happens, right? And if you get caught, it's like, eh. You know, such is life, right? It's very funny that uh, Americans are supposed to be this individualistic culture. And uh, I guess Denmark is supposed to be more of a communal culture. And it's it just completely the opposite, the way people play poker, right? It's very much like there's a group mentality in the United States. But no, this tends to be people don't like to raise as a bluff because they can be blamed. Uh, if they raise with two pair or better, nobody's ever going to give them a hard time. Uh, with pairs, they love to hero call down uh, because there's no way to feel bad about yourself. You can always feel like a card player. You make a bad call. How ubiquitous are bad calls at the poker table? 
How many times have you seen a guy call on a river while holding his cards above the muck? Think of how insane that is. He's calling 10, 15, 20 big blinds. Guess what? That's your win rate for the next three, four, five hours. Kiss it goodbye because you don't feel like working right now. But you, their incentive, remember, is not to make money. That might be your incentive, but do not project it onto them. Their incentive is to feel good and to feel like a poker player and to enjoy their time. And guess what? If they fold the winner, they're going to get a lot of ridicule if the other person shows a bluff. They're not going to feel good. And it really hurts loss aversion. It really gets into the, oh my God, if I just stuck it out for a minute. It's the reason why, what's his name? The guy who sold Victoria's Secret for like a million dollars after only a couple years of work. Oh my God, does amazing. And you've heard this story, right, Barry? I don't think I've heard the Victoria's Secret one, no. You don't think that, I, if I have this right, they, it comes up in that movie, The Social Network. It's uh, Don't quote me on this, but if I have it right, the guy who first came up with Victoria's Secret, he wanted to create a store where men could bring their wives in to shop for lingerie and it wouldn't be a very uh, uncomfortable situation. He sold the business for a couple mil. I think he only put a couple years in it. Wiped his hands. He was feeling great about himself. Well... Turns out the people who bought it turned into a billion-dollar business a few years later, and I think he jumped off a bridge because even though he walked away with a couple mil in his head, if he hung on just a little longer with that river call, he would have been a billionaire, right? And that's just how humans operate. That's just how it is. Humans don't want to feel like they're left out. They don't want to feel like they're ostracized. They don't want to feel like they were so close to it. And what I just gave you is how 99% of people play poker. You go in with that, value bet viciously, do not bring out the big bluff unless you have a damn good reason to do it and you can shove the guy all in on the river. Especially in tournaments, there's a little bit more of an embarrassment factor because they got to turn up their hand. But most of the time, I wouldn't fool with the bluff. Viciously value bet because they call too much. Get it heads up if you're going to try to see that bluff. That would be the only bluff I'd bring in. Uh, recognize most of your pots are going to be multi-way. Recognize nobody's going to fold if they can't see the flop. Good luck to you. It's funny, just uh, another like down note. You reminded me there of the, a few years ago, there was a German billionaire. He was one of the richest, I think he was the richest man in Germany, um, 12 billion, something like that. Um, he'd been left at, you know, family inheritance, whatever. He was in control of it due to, um, I think he had shares in some car company or or it was the financial crash. One of the two, something happened and it wiped like so many billion off his um, net worth. And he went down to something like eight billion, seven, eight billion. So he was still worth eight billion but he'd lost the position as number one richest in Germany, and that was what his family beat, this and that. And he killed himself. He threw himself in front of him. My God. I'm, so, I, I'm sorry. I just, like, that's so mind-blowing. Yeah, because that's humans, right? It's and crazy. their baseline is... Whatever your baseline is, if you ever go below that, everybody goes berserk. And it's almost, without getting... 
with it, without getting too holistic, I think everybody should go broke in their life just once, just once. Have everybody turn on them, have to go to the nitty gritty to turn it around, have to bust their ass and humble themselves. Because once you have that just once, or do one job you just absolutely dread, right? Just dread, so, like digging ditches in the mud, commercial fishing, or even just a service job where people don't treat you so well. Because I guarantee you that guy never did any of that because he, you know, if he had that perspective, he goes from 12 billion to 8 billion, he's gonna be like, eh, you know, such is life, who cares? Yeah, was, his name was Merkel or something. I think it was like Adolf Merkel or something like that. And he, he was There's stuck a name you don't hear much anymore. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I know. I was going to say that. But um, yeah, I think it's all it's weird. It's all the emotions, you know, tied up. And I think he was stuff about his family. It was more like the, the honor and stuff with the family position. But yeah, you're still a multi-billionaire. It's still money. It's, it was... That's, but it's like you say, people do it with this baseline. They they save up money. They their new their new poor becomes a hundred grand, and when they dip below a hundred k, they're like, you know, wow, you know, I need to do something here. This is ridiculous, and they forget when they were broke and they would have done anything for a thousand dollars. You know, right, so. right. Or like you say, they were never broke. They were born into it, and they don't have that capacity they just don't have it you know so i feel i I, whenever people do the like oh like i wish i could be this guy this guy you know he's a trust fund baby or something like i can't like no matter what you achieve nobody's ever gonna say you did it yourself that sounds terrible to me that's that's like that's brutal i mean uh to this day like when it's cold outside and I have my apartment nice and warm, I still like it quite a bit, right? You know, and I remember when eating out was a treat, right? Like that was, uh, whoo, dad's home from fishing. We're going to the Buzz Inn, right? I'm, I'm going to get myself some really good, right? So like to this day when I eat out, it's still like sweet. I would hate to not have that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's true. It's like, if you come from nothing and you work up, you can appreciate the the small wins and the getting up and, and you know and taking it for. We've joked about it, the fizzy juice, you know, the recurring theme on this show. But <laughs> when we were younger, Alex was said the same, like buying like real Coca Cola was a, tr- you know, I remember that having a few pounds. I made it. I made it. No more yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. You, you know, like buying that yourself going up and buying like a can of coke was like oh like i've made it you know like just <laughs> look i remember the real rich kids got thomas kemper root beer that was three dollar root beer you were balling out of control in the neighborhood <laughs> if you had a thomas kemper root beer, you'd be like going by on your skateboard like they see me yeah also <laughs> that you know in the club <laughs> all right let's wrap it up i'm 15 minutes late for stuff i gotta do but um let's it's been it's been worth it and um, we have to wrap it up by talking about the test your poker super pack deal that we're doing we are still running the poker craftsman one as well 
So if you want a discount off Poker Craftsman or Test Your Poker Super Pack, all you need to do is enter one outer at checkout. And Poker Craftsman package is down to $79 from $480. And Test Your Poker Super Pack is down from $349.99 to $49.99. I think that's right, Alex. You'll correct me if it's wrong. Yes, sir. That is correct. That's correct. So you can get both those excellent packages, which uh, if you went for both of them, it's going to cost you like, you know, a quick mass, what, $129 or something. And Poker Craftsman is six packages in one, plus the super pack. I mean, you're getting tons for your money. So all the details of those offers are in the show notes and on the oneouter.com website. If you go to oneouter.com, click in either the show notes, the blog post, or Alex's store at the top right tab on the oneouter.com homepage. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for what you're doing, get on the newsletter, etc.? If you want to sign up for my newsletter and get content like you just heard for the last 40, 50 minutes for absolutely free every single day, uh, go to pokerheadrush.com. And if you really want to make sure that you get my emails, add alex at pokerheadrush.com to your contacts list. I promise you, it's almost always free content. Uh, check out Test Your Poker Super Pack. There's a free one-hour episode on the product site. That's a really cool thing I get to do with my site now at pokerheadrush.com, which is I just love putting free lessons on the page because it's like, don't take my word for it. Check out one of the lessons and see what it's like. And uh, yeah, Test Your Poker is on sale. It's six different packages put together. If you, They're meant to be warm-ups before you play. If you do five questions over 15 minutes every morning, it will be a complete four weeks before you have to repeat a question with this pack. Only $49. And yeah, thank you guys for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And keep your questions coming in, Alex, uh, Alex, you know. Yeah, Alex at oneouter.com. Why not? It'll all get to me. <laughs> <laughs> you deal with it now, Alex, yeah. Yeah, questions at oneouter.com on email, and we will answer them, tweet them, post them in the Facebook group. However it is, we will get them on a future show. Me and Alex have recorded four episodes of this podcast for you in the space of 25 hours, and... That's me done now, Alex, for the year. I need to go and recharge now and watch my box sets and hibernate. So we will be back in the new year, likely, and I'll see if I can negotiate some discounts off something else in Alex's store, and we'll get back and answer more of your questions then. Uh, until then, have a great Christmas and a new year. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>